Welcome to episode 124 of the Jackson Hole Connection, recording right here at International Headquarters for the Jackson Hole Connection. This episode's sponsor is Prue Real Estate. Should you have any questions about real estate in Jackson Hole, give Dan Vazoski or Greg Prue a call or visit prugh.com. That's prugh.com to search current listings. Hello, everybody, and happy day wherever you are. I'm Stefan Abrams, your host. My mission is to bring you a fascinating story of real people connected in some way to Jackson Hole. Jackson Hole is full of inspiration, liveliness, and excitement, which pulls people here like a powerful magnet. My guests share their stories with you and I each week. The stories they tell allows us all to learn about each other's lives, which help us all live full lives. And my guest today is a person in the Jackson Hole community who I consider to be a friend and whom I deeply feel grateful to know. Chris Hessler is the one person on this vast planet of many, many, many people whom I feel is making an intentional positive impact on the lives of the people who he meets. To me, Chris is a thought leader, a coach, and a mentor. To others, Chris is a father, a husband, a partner. After surviving brain cancer, Chris's life changed, as anybody's would. Chris shares with us today the appreciations he has for the people who helped him through cancer treatment and how it impacted and brought he and his children closer together. He also shares with us what he changed about his life after surviving brain cancer and how each of us, everybody who's listening, who wishes to make a change, can take some small actions to live life and be really intentional about living your life. I'm humbled and honored Chris is sharing this story with us all today. Chris, thank you for taking the time to join me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. Wonderful to see you via Zoom and sit down and have uh, some conversation time with you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. You have... I'd say one of the most fascinating histories and and stories throughout your life at this point. And you have a a fabulous connection to Jackson Hole. And I like to start the podcast with people understanding your connection to this magnificent place that so many of us call home. Could you start off by by sharing that? Sure. So about... 20 years ago, I was building a business in Boston, and I got a phone call from a guy named Jeff Frazier, who had a public company in our space and was interested in buying us. He said he would come see us the next week. Uh, The next week came and went. He didn't show up, but he called me, and he said, look, I'm really sorry. I missed the plane, and I said, okay. Uh, You know, we've all missed planes. Tell me the story, and he says, well, I was, I got stuck behind a cattle drive and I couldn't get to the airport. And I was like, really, where do you live? And he says, I live in Jackson, Wyoming. And I said, well, I'm a skier. I've always wanted to go to Jackson, Wyoming. Why don't we, why don't I come to Jackson? I'll bring my skis. He said, great. I'll get you a ski pass. We'll talk on the lift. So I then discovered that he was on Spring Gulch Road, which I later got to know and got stuck behind, you know, a, uh, a Matt Mead family cattle drive. 
So I went out there and he picked me up at the airport. He gave me a ski pass. I think I was there for two or three days. And uh, I was in my late 30s and I loved to ski. And I just thought the mountain was great. And then he rallied some of his pals. They, they drove me all over the mountain. I did Corbett's twice on skis. I learned the meaning of a yard sale. I'd never been exposed to a yard sale before, but I did two of them apparently. <laughs> so anyway, super fun time. He had a uh, an in public internet company with an overvalued stock price. He offered me a big price for our company. I took it back to the board and the board looked at this and said, this feels like the deal not to do. So we never did the deal, but a, uh, a week later, uh, I went back to Jackson and took my family there and we stayed in the village at the Alpenhof, and we were just we were in love with uh, with Jackson. That's that's how that's how I got exposed to Jackson. Well, everybody finds it somehow, and everybody <laughs> finds it somehow. Everybody has a story, right? That's, that's right. Uh, whether it's somebody's motorhome breaking down on a road trip across the country, or coming out here to meet somebody to sell your business, right, <laughs> and getting right, right. stuck behind a cattle drive. Right. I, I love it. So you ended up selling that business, correct? Correct. Yeah, we sold yes. it to um, to the Pitney Bowes Corporation. Okay. And yep. during your life over the past few years, you've had um, a life-changing event. Yep. And share with us what that life-changing event was and how that impacted you. So if we connect the dots from going to Jackson for the first time in, I think it was like 2000 or 2001, something like that. Like so many people, uh, we bought real estate in Jackson and we ended up with a piece of property in uh, Dairy Ranch. We built a house there and I've spent my career building companies with venture capital. When 2008, the meltdown of 2008 rolled around, there was no venture capital. No VCs were making investments. And so we had just finished the house and, and uh, our boys were teenagers. They were young teenagers, kind of like middle school, high school. They loved to snowboard. And they, they'd come out to Jackson a couple of times. They um, snowboarded with the uh, Jackson Hole Ski Club. And basically, we said, why don't we like just move there for a year and that was the idea. Uh, our oldest biological son, Philip, was in 11th grade. We had just taken in his best friend, Brolin Maweji from Kampala, Uganda, who's also a snowboarder. So we joked as a family that we were going to do junior year abroad in Wyoming for the family. <laughs> okay. Well, remember John Lennon said that in life, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans. So that's what happened. In, uh, we made plans to move in the spring of 2009. The kids were all enrolled in school for the fall, and I got super sick in the summer of 2009. Uh, I stayed in Boston, moved into Mass General Hospital. My then wife, Sandy, moved to Jackson with the kids because they were all needed to go to school. And I spent uh, the next year at Mass General Hospital, I was diagnosed with a bad brain lymphoma. I had 20 lesions in my brain. Over the next year, I went through 28 rounds of chemo and survived. So life is good. You know, I came out the other end. Wow. You make surviving brain cancer sound quite simple <laughs> and 
easy in some ways. Well, let me tell you a little secret. I was saved by an amazing man who my sister and Sandy found at, at Mass General, a gentleman by the name of Fred Hochberg, who of course loves to fly fish in the Tetons. And he looked at me one day while we were going through chemo and he says, you know, you, you are really good at chemo. I said, you know, I spent my life in entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a grind. Chemo is a grind. And he said, you have the perfect background for chemo. <laughs> so I think I was well suited for it. Well, I'm glad that you came out on the right side of going through chemo and, and brain cancer. And just knowing you through the community and, and other organizations and interacting with you, you've openly shared your experience to help others be inspired by the battle and, and challenges of life. Not everybody's open to, to sharing those experiences. Why, why do you do that, Chris? So I think it's a couple of reasons. You know, I'm going to back up a little bit and, uh, and, and say, I think I survived this because I had incredible support from my family, extended family, and my friends. I found the right doctor, and I had a will to live. Like, I, was, I wasn't ready for this to kill me. I, I wanted to keep living. And I learned that having the will and the internal fortitude to want to survive is a big part of it. So I think those are really, Stephen, the three reasons why. Um, why was I comfortable sharing this? Um, I would say when I first got into it and realized that I had brain cancer and we had to like figure out, one of the things I learned very quickly is that brain cancer drugs don't work the same way on everybody because all our physiologies are different. And so we react to identical patients can react differently to the same chemo drug. So my regimen turned into a lot of experimentation. I actually went through 16 rounds of a drug called methotrexate, which didn't work. I got a secondary lymphoma at the end of 16 rounds. And then we tried a new chemo agent called cytoxin, which worked. And so I think one of the reasons that I made it through to the other end was I was open-minded. I was willing to listen to anybody and try anything that might help. I was not you know, pro this, against that. I wasn't dogmatic about it. I was just, you know, anybody who rolled around. So here's, here's an example. Um, I had a reaction to the methotrexate. I had allergic reactions, and then I had what's called mucositis of the mouth. Basically, you get all these sores in your mouth and you can't eat. Ooh. It's awful, okay? All I could do was drink liquids for a month. And it's painful. Every time you swallow, it's painful. Well, a friend of mine in Lincoln, Mass, by the name of Susan, she came to visit me one day and she said, you know, my husband had mucositis and we found these Chinese herbs. So I'm going to bring you Chinese herbs and, and show you how to, how to gargle with these Chinese herbs. So I did and it helped. You know, you just never know what's going to help. You have to be open-minded. So the reason I'm comfortable sharing my story is because it's such an awful sentence to get a cancer diagnosis that if something I learned can help somebody in their battle, I'm more than willing to help. That's part of the reason why I wrote this down. Like I wrote a book in 2012 about what happened to me and I have zero commercial aspirations for my book. I think I've sold 61 copies on Amazon. 
but I just give it to people and uh, in the hope that they can get hope and ideas from it that could help them. And share the title of your book. The title is um, To Be Alive. Anybody who's interested can, can buy it on Amazon. I think it's $19. And it has a subtitle, which I credit to Dr. Hochberg. When I asked him at the end of the ordeal, I said, Dr. Hochberg, why did I get this? I was a healthy 45-year-old guy who was competing in triathlons. And CNS lymphoma, my particular type of brain cancer, affects people over 65 with autoimmune conditions. So I didn't, I didn't fit the demo. And I said, why did I get this? And why did I survive? And he said, there by the grace of God go I. That was his answer. And so that's the subtitle of the book. And I remember you saying that you, you wrote the book to, to help other people, but you also wrote it as a gift to your children as well. Correct. And, and share how is the book a gift to your children and what was your children's response when the book was finished? Great question. So I have four boys and a girl and they were all, the boys were all teenagers at Jackson Hole High School while I was in the hospital. For anybody who has raised teenage boys or teenage girls, I guess, it's hard to get them to talk about their emotions and how they're feeling. And so I really wanted to know how my kids were feeling when I was sick, but I wasn't very successful at uh, getting that out of them. And so I had this idea in January of 2012, I'm going to write a book. And uh, I always wanted to write a book. And now I had a really interesting topic to write about. So I wrote this book. It took me a year. It's about 150 pages. And it took me a year. And I, I was an episodic writer. Like I would write three chapters and then not do anything for two weeks. Like I'd have to be inspired. I think everybody, I think all writers write, you know, according to their own cadence, whatever is right for them. That was mine, episodic. But I had a, I had a, a deadline because I had a goal, which was to give manuscripts of the book to all the kids for Christmas and then have them read it and then talk about it. And I thought that might work to pry their feelings out of them. Okay, so here's what happened. Super interesting. So they each got a manuscript. At Christmas, I said, look, this is the ultimate homemade gift. I worked on it nonstop for a year, <laughs> right? And they all read it. They were way into it. And then we talked about it. Two of my boys were in the college application process and in their essays, they wrote about my disease. And that's really, and, and then when I published, I self-published the book. When I self-published the book, I included their essays in, in the appendix. But that's really where I learned how scared they were mm -hmm. that I might die. So it was really, it was, it was a device to pry their feelings out of them. And it worked. You are somebody who comes up with great ideas and uh, methods to engage with your children. I, I love hearing your, your stories and, and approaches to uh, engage with those kids and, and get information out of them. Right. Something every parent needs help with. <laughs> yes. Yes. So your kids opened up and, and shared how they felt at, after you wrote the book. Right. And, and they were, you, as you said, they were scared. And now that life has after that moment and, and having the book, 
what was how did that did it change the relationship between you and your your children oh i would say so mm -hmm. yeah you know and i came back i lost all my hair they laughed at me mm -hmm. and i told them look i could be bald or i could be dead <laughs> so i think part of the uh part of the coping mechanism was to use humor and have some fun with the kids and make it a little less serious for them mm-hmm yeah, I mean, I think I definitely got uh, closer to all the kids as a result of uh, what we all went through as a family. Well, I, I'm very happy for you that even though it was such a painful experience, that you and your children were able to have stronger bond and, and ties um, afterwards, because not everybody can say that they have that after a life-changing event. Right. There were, there were a number of, um, as, as bizarre as this sounds, there were a number of good things that came out of the experience. Mm -hmm. A bad thing came out of it in that uh, Sandy and I got divorced. We did not survive it. I survived it, but the marriage did not survive it. But, you know, the kids are all on solid footing and we wanted different things in life. So that was fine. But one of the things that I learned, are you okay if I go down this, down this yeah. path? Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I learned is a platitude, but it's how precious life is. Because in the in February of 2010, and I write about this in my book, I saw the white light. Like, I think I came very close to dying. And I believe that I willed myself out of it. My entire room became white. I felt myself levitating above the whiteness. It was, I, I think I was witnessing my own death. And I just kept saying, I don't want this to happen. I don't want this to happen. I repeated that over and over again. And I unwound it, I think. So it made me really reflect on how I wanted to spend the next chapter of my life. And I had been a go-go entrepreneur, building these companies, selling these companies. And I decided that I really wanted to be intentional about how I would spend the next 25, 30 years of my life. Let's say I live to average life expectancy of 87, 90, whatever men are in the United States now. I did, because I'm an optimist, I did have this conviction that because I'd been hit so hard with this brain cancer, I would be healthy forever. Rightly or wrong, that's my belief, right? And so I made friends through Silicon Core, which I helped start in Jackson with Bill Watkins, who was a CEO coach. And I had made friends with Carol Mann, who is a spiritual coach. And I said to them, I want to plan the rest of my life with your help. And so I worked with the two of them for a year. And using one of Bill's CEO techniques, which is the one-page plan, I actually developed a 25-year plan for myself and how I would like to spend my life. And it was an awesome exercise. And one, one of the steps in the 25-year plan was I'd like to get remarried. And I have gotten remarried to the lovely Lisa. We've been married a year and a half now. We were introduced through a mutual friend in Boston. And it's been great. Okay. But the, the crux of the 25-year plan comes from a question that Carol Mann asked me, which was she said, when were you at your best? And I said, I was at my best in college. I went to Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, middle of New Hampshire. Um, I came there from Europe where my dad was working. And it was 
an amazing institution, except it was really, really cold in the winter. And it's New England cold, not Jackson cold. So you have minus 20, but it's like this moist minus 20, not a dry minus 20. It's Ugh. miserable. It's awful. Ugh. Awful. <laughs> so after one year, I said to myself, how do I get out of these winters? So I discovered that Dartmouth has all these foreign study programs. So I went on three. I went every year in the winter. I went to Southern <laughs> Spain. I went to Mexico and I went to Berlin. Okay. I studied languages. So I was studying languages, living with families. I loved it. Why did I love it? Because I was really into the cultures. I was into making local friends. I was into like trying out the local food, drinking the local beer. And the profs had office hours in a bar. So we would sit in a bar with the prof, drink beer, and talk about the book. It was a blast. And I got all A's, so it was really good for my GPA. <laughs> so I said to Carol, that's when I was at your best. So Carol said to me, you could do that for the rest of your life. And, and this light bulb went off. And I said, that's my 25-year plan. I want to every year spend... 90 days living somewhere else and then come back and spend time in Jackson, spend time in Boston, but every day, you know, try something else. So when I met Lisa on the first date, I told her about my 25 year plan and there was this pause and, and I said, okay, this woman either loves this plan or she hates this plan. <laughs> There's not much in between. And she looked at me and smiled and said, where do I audition? to be the co-pilot of your 25-year plan. And I said, Lisa, we're in the audition. <laughs> <laughs> and she loves it. And we're actually on it. Like we're, we're spending, you know, we can't, we want to spend time in the Mediterranean and we can't go to the Mediterranean right now. The EU won't have us, but we're spending 45 days in Charleston, South Carolina. And then later in the year, after we get vaccinated, we hope we're going to spend 45 days in uh, San Diego. And I've, I'm inviting all the kids to come to San Diego, have a reunion. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's, uh, that's one thing that came out of the brain cancer was how can I be intel in, intentional and for the rest of my life, lead the life I really want to lead. I, I love it. And I, I know Carol and, and Bill, and I get to work with Bill on a, on a weekly basis for, for coaching. And having a coach is so important. So important. Yes. So important. Game changing. It is. It is a game changer. I want to take a quick break to get a word from a sponsor and then come back and talk more about coaching and what it was like to go through that process to develop your 25-year plan. Okay. So we'll be right back. Sounds good. When you're thinking about making a real estate decision, it's important to go with somebody you can trust. Recently, I trusted Dan Vazoski at Pru Real Estate to personally handle a real estate transaction. The service and attention I received demonstrated I am important. Greg Pru started Pru Real Estate in 2002 with you, the customer, in mind. Give Greg or Dan a call at 307-733-9888 or visit prugh.com. That's pru.com to connect today. Let them know you heard about them from Stefan. That's me, the podcast guy. Now, Chris, before we went on break, you had mentioned that you worked with two coaches to draft your 25-year plan. 
and you've been acting upon that 25-year yep. plan. And you also mentioned yep. that after you survived brain cancer treatment, you wanted to be, be really intentional. Mm-hmm. Now, I am curious about what is your definition of being really intentional. And I'm also interested for you to share what sparked your interest to say, I'm going to get a coach to help me move forward with living, being really intentional. Okay. So there's a couple of questions in there. Mm-hmm. I think the way I look at intentionality is if I think about how I lived my first 45 years, I just ran really hard. That was the definition of my intentionality. And then after the brain cancer, I said, I really want to think about what I want to work on, who I want to work on it with, where I want to be, how I want to spend my time, all those kinds of things. And I want to reflect and actually plan. And so to your second question, Bill Watkins is a CEO coach and he has all kinds of tools. And one of the tools is the one page plan, which you're familiar with, which is a super, super powerful tool for driving intentionality and accountability. Because what you're, what you're really doing is you're saying, okay, I want to start, in my case, I want to start in uh, 25 years out. I want to start in 2042. And I want to lay out the kind of a life I want to be leading in 2042 in 25 years. Okay. Then I want to take a look at three years out. Do the same thing. I want to look at one year out. And then I want to look at one quarter. You know, let's just look at Q1 2021. And I'm going to write down the things I really want to do. And it's a, it's a fabulous process and a fabulous discipline. I think most of us, in the absence of a one-page plan, we just kind of run hard, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that is our plan. Our plan is to run hard. But it's, I've been blown away. Um, and I, I was very fortunate to meet Bill Watkins at a Silicon Cool War Chance meeting when he first showed up in town. He stuck out his hand and introduced himself to me, and we've been great friends ever since. And I was very fortunate to have been introduced to Carol, Carol Mann, who did a soul reading on me and was scaringly accurate. And so I said to myself, I've probably come across two world-class coaches who couldn't be more complimentary. And so I signed them both up and uh, I met with them once a week for a year to create this plan. And it was life-changing, life-changing. During the process of creating that life plan, your um, one-page personal plan, did you ever feel as though planning out so much was going to be restrictive? Because I I can hear people thinking or saying to myself, my gosh, how am I going to plan out 25 years from now? It, It just seems like, too much pressure in some ways to think that way. Well, Bill answered that question for me because I had the same concern. And he said, what you're really going to do is you're going to plan out 100 growth cycles. So every quarter, think of every quarter as a growth cycle for yourself. How are you growing? But you're not planning that quarter until the start of the quarter. So you have tons of flexibility in this process. But what you're also doing is you're setting up a North Star. 
that says in 25 years, this is, this is what I want to have done. So my North Star was I want to have lived in 25 interesting places for 90 days at a crack. And that's pretty vague. It's specific, but vague. Like there's a lot of interpretation that can go into that in the 25 years, right? So there's a lot of room for creativity. There's a lot of room for uh, zigging and zagging based on what you learn. I think that's the fun of it. I, I do have a one page personal plan that yep. in working with Bill and, and I love having it. It gives, and I work on it each quarter with not just me, but I work on it with my wife because she is so important in my life now, but also sure. where my life will be in 25 years. Yep. Cause I want my wife to be a part. So it's, it's not just my plan. It's our plan. Lisa and I do the same thing. It's our plan. Yeah. And you interact with quite a few CEOs because of your background and current business um, yep. business involvement. And when you talk about such a plan with people and the um, you know challenge that you had that you overcame of brain cancer, how do people lean in? How do these other business executives lean into this story and to this message? It's a great question. And it's something that I struggle with a lot. So I have a, a mastermind group of college buddies. There's seven of us. We get together every year or 18 months and we know each other super well, high trust environment. Everybody is an entrepreneur. We have an entre five entrepreneurs, one tenured professor and one MD. So everybody's super accomplished. And I came to them three years ago with my one page plan and I brought Bill on video to one of our mastermind gatherings. And I said, I pounded the table and I said, each of you needs to sign up with Bill Watkins and it will change your life. So, so far, three years later, one of them has, and it, I, it's changed his life. Okay. The other five have not, and it, their lives haven't changed. <laughs> okay. So as I interact with other CEOs, like everybody's blown away by this concept, but I'm not sure it's for everybody. I try to explain to people, you should do this. It will change your life, but I can only go so far. And, and one of the things that I have um, concluded is I don't think it's my purpose in life to get other people to make 25 year plans. I thought for a while, maybe that was, but I don't think it is. Rather, one of the things that my friends who are CEOs um, ask me, because I am very much uh, winding down my career. So a year ago, I was uh, an investor in eight different companies. And so I said, what I want to do, and this is back to the power of intentionality. I said, over the next two years, I want to unwind these eight companies. And I managed to unwind four last year, pandemic or no pandemic, you know, life goes on, companies get bought, companies get sold. But in talking to other CEO buddies about my plan and my plan to really be doing it full time by 2022, you know what, what, you know, everybody says like, I love it. It's great. Can I come and visit you in the Mediterranean? And the answer is yes, please come visit. We'll get a big villa and you can stay with us. But then they say, huh, I'm not sure this would be for me because I don't know what I would do if I wasn't running my business. And so I say to them, like, 
how long do you think you're going to run your business? And they say, I don't know, like I might be doing it at 65, 70. Okay. So that's fine. That's for them. Okay. But what I've, what I've learned in the last month since we kicked off the plan is that it actually takes a fair amount of work and coordination and logistics to execute against this plan. Like you have to figure out where you're going. You have to like figure out how you're going to get there. You know, invariably you, you find friends who have friends there, you connect with them. Then you have to find a place to live. You have to find where the best restaurants are. You have to, you have to do real work. It's not like, you know, being on a Zoom call with three people trying to you know, sell somebody a contract, but it's work. And then what I also love to do as part of this is I organize what I call cousins reunions, which are reunions of the cousins. Hmm. So I have five kids. Lisa has a son. I, and then they all have partners now. They're all in their 20s. I think all in there's like 15 total. And one of the things I do is I organize reunions and I fly everybody to wherever we are and then bring everybody together for a week. It's a blast. But that takes work. You have to organize that. Right. And then they need lodging and blah, blah, blah. So I think this is my job. This is my new job is to organize all this stuff. And it's a blast. I love it. When somebody says that they'll just work until they that's all they can envision doing, then I, I'm going to go back to what you said that you wanted to live life with real intentional, be real intentional yep. about it. Yep. Um, maybe those people are being real intentional for themselves in their own way. But there's more to life than than work. Um, it's those moments you're you're creating those those precious, memorable moments with your family and right. um, the experiences, which it's each person's um, desire of what they want to feel and experience in life. I think that's right. It's not for everybody. You mm -hmm. know, everybody's different, and everybody has to do their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And. With you being in, involved in Silicon Coulard and you being involved in, in other organizations, you, mm -hmm. you're giving back your knowledge of and your experience of being in that venture capital world and business world and philosophy and perspective of, of life. Did you have somebody when you were younger in your early career or, um, that helped you along that path? like you're helping others. Definitely. I had multiple people. I had different people at different stages mm -hmm. who really stepped up and taught me a lot, took me under their wing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's so much that young entrepreneurs can learn from the gray-haired entrepreneurs so much and mm -hmm. mistakes to avoid and what to do right. There's just, you know, the problem with um, entrepreneurship is there's no real playbook for entrepreneurship. I think Bill Watkins and others do a great job of teaching you tools and techniques that can make you more effective. But, you know, we have created programs at um, Silicon Kuwar, which uh, Sandy and Liza have run, which are the Startup Intensive Entrepreneur Essentials. I think those are very good at helping entrepreneurs go along. But ultimately, you know, first time entrepreneurs are groping in the dark. And so mentorship really matters. And uh, I think three or four years ago at, at Silicon Kuwar, we said we we're going to crack the code on mentorship. And Scott Fitzgerald, who was our ED at the time, who I know you know, who is awesome, he said, I don't want to reinvent mentorship. I want to go find the best mentorship model in the world. And he found it at MIT. 
And we sent a group there. We all got trained on uh, what they call their venture mentoring program, brought it back. It's a wild success now. We have about 50 community members who mentor about 25 companies. It's a team mentoring platform where you have two or three mentors uh, mentoring one company because the theory is that you get more perspectives that way. And we get community members raising their hands all the time saying, I want to be a mentor. It's one of the best things that's come out of Silicon Core. So I'm really glad that, you know, what I was doing in the early days in mentoring entrepreneurs informally, we've been able to build into more of a system that can scale, you know, and uh, I, th I think we did it really smartly and it's been a while, crazy good success. Is there a difference between having a mentor going through a mentoring ship process and coaching? Yeah, they're definitely different. You know, a coach is somebody you hire to coach you and you're on a regular cadence of weekly meetings with your coach and he or she is providing you with tools and techniques to make you better, okay? And that is super valuable for young entrepreneurs. Um, the mentorship program, by contrast, has no cost. The mentors are all volunteers, but what it does is it gets you exposure to two to three people who have 20 to 30 years of business experience and can really give you real-time feedback on what you're trying to figure out and help you figure out complex things. So it's, I, I, would, I would say, Stefan, that the CEO coaching is really about developing the CEO and the mentoring is really about developing the business, if that makes sense, the person versus the business. It, it does. I, I appreciate that clarity of between the two. And I, I'm, I am also curious if you feel that, does anybody reach a point where they've been in business, whether they're an entrepreneur or a high level executive, or just a very, an A player, a high level contributor to an organization, do they reach a point where coaching and mentoring is not going to be, um, they're not going to receive a value? or a benefit out of coaching and mentoring? So here's how I'll answer that. One of the things I've done for the last seven years is I've served on boards for a private equity firm in San Francisco that is super successful at what they do. They buy businesses in software and services. They groom CEOs who they hire from the best business schools. They hire experienced CEOs. In their 20 years of existence, when they look at the scorecard, of what makes a CEO successful in their world, the number one attribute is humility, okay? And we've seen it. We've had to remove CEOs who were not humble. They knew it all. They didn't want any coaching. So I think the answer to that is if somebody believes that they've come to the end of the road on coaching, they're, they're in a rut, they're not going to continue to grow and expand their responsibilities and so forth. But if somebody continues to be open to continuing to learn and be coached and be mentored, their runway is unbelievable. I, I have bought into that and I drink it, I eat it and I regurgitate it. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. And we evangelize it, right? 
Absolutely. You bet I do. Yeah. And that's with everybody that I interact with in, in my organization. Uh, the yeah. organizations that I'm involved in is never stop. I, I, I love seeing and interacting with young kids who are still in school. And when I tell them, remember what you learn today is information that you will always have. That's information that nobody can ever take away from you. And it's always yours. So never stop learning. Right. Can, can, it doesn't matter what you're learning. Just always keep learning to challenge yourself and, and grow yourself. And I tell my kids that too, even though yep. they're seven and five and they go, Oh, Papa. <laughs> well, think about it this way, Stefan. I have read that the number one attribute Google looks for in new hires is, are you a lifelong learner? Hmm. That says it all, doesn't it? It does. It does. And when I look back to who I was and where I was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I always liked to learn, but I was not as um, active in seeking out new information and reading new information. Mm -hmm. um, I was always open to talking to somebody who had more experience than me and learning new systems, learning new processes, but changing up the platforms of where I receive information has helped me grow. Yeah, makes sense. And, and remaining open-minded to the information that's provided to me. Yep. Yeah. Chris, this has been a wonderful time that I've been able to spend with you. I always enjoy our, our conversations. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. I hope your readers, listeners, readers get something out of it. And um, I, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. You're welcome. And I like to ask people before we sign off, if there's a little nugget of inspiration or word of wisdom that you want to make sure that people uh, leave with today after hearing and, and, and joining in today, what would that be from you? When I, when people ask me to sign my book for them, I always write the same thing. I just say, remember anything is possible. That so is, that's my, that's my two cents. Anything is possible. That is so true. I love it. Yep. My mom used to always say, the worst thing anybody can say to you is no, you might as well ask. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. And anything is possible. Um, anything is I appreciate possible. it, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy South Carolina, or as some people say, South Kakalaki. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. Great talking to you. you Happy New well. Year. Thank you, Chris. Happy New okay. Year to you as well. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. To learn more about Chris and his book, To Be Alive, visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 124. For all of you listeners out there, please share this episode, connect with other people, give hugs, give smiles, make the world a better place. If you want to reach out to me, email is connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. I appreciate any feedback, thoughts, and anybody you might know that want to be a guest here at the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you, everybody who keeps listening each week. I so appreciate it. I do love hearing your feedback. Thank you, Laura. I love you. Thank you, Lewis and William. I love you guys, too. You are my world. 
And thank you to my editor and marketing director, Michael Morey, and the music provider, the soon to be famous, Luke Taylor. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.